Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, September 22nd. Today, Bill Cohan is on for the second time this week to discuss the New York Attorney General's lawsuit against Donald Trump, alleging that the former president fraudulently inflated the value of his holdings and broke numerous New York state laws. Bill, who has covered Trump in the New York financial scene for years, is here to break it all down. And later on, Teddy Schleifer is here to discuss how California Governor Gavin Newsom has made himself the star of a perplexing Silicon Valley civil war over a controversial climate tax bill and what Newsom's surprising new alliance reveals about his possible presidential ambitions. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Thursday, everybody. Yesterday, New York Attorney General Tish James uh, announced a wide-ranging civil lawsuit against Donald Trump and his kids, his large adult children, basically alleging that he had inflated value of his properties, basically committed fraudulent financial practices, and is asking them for a quarter billion dollars. Uh, here to discuss is my man, Bill Cohan. Bill, can you just walk us through what this lawsuit says? Well, it's so... Uh more than 200 pages, and I confess to not reading all of it yet. <laughs> Give us the cliff notes. <laughs> Essentially, the ar- argument is that after investigating the Donald and his business for three years, essentially the argument is that Donald and his children benefited by some $250 million by overinflating the value of various real estate that the Trump organization owned. And as a result of that overinflation, not only was he able to increase his net worth, uh, at least on paper, but also, you know, theoretically induce various banks and lending organizations to give him loans uh, and Trump organization loans that uh, you know he used to build these projects or to refinance these projects or you know to dividend out to him uh, that he wouldn't have been able to do had he not overvalued his properties. And this is interesting on any number of levels. Um, number one, it's essentially a big part of what the Manhattan District Attorney, you know Cyrus Vance was looking at too criminally. Again, this is a civil lawsuit that Tish James has brought, but the Manhattan DA, Cyrus Vance, was criminally looking at the same kind of behavior. He also was looking at whether Donald Trump underestimated the value of these buildings when he was reporting to the IRS so he could pay uh, fewer taxes than he than he would otherwise be required to pay. I don't see Tish James dealing with the IRS here. This is just about his real estate overinflation, overvaluation in order to get the banks to uh, give him loans. He's also kind of lucky that she's only focusing on 10 years here, whatever it is, 2011 to 2021. I mean, this kind of Trumpian behavior has been going on since the 90s. You know, and if you go back to one of my favorite documents, which is the December 2007 deposition that Trump gave in the Tim O'Brien lawsuit, you know, the Trump sued him for writing uh, Trump Nation and, you know, the article in the New York Times that said Trump was worth 
100 to 200 million or 150 to 250 million as opposed to, you know, the 10 billion or 5 billion that Trump thought he was worth. He's been sort of overinflating his net worth for decades. You know, he used to get pissed at Forbes for not including him on the, you know, Forbes wealthiest individual list. Frankly, this goes to the heart of Trump's persona and public image. Everything that he's used politically to gain political office is based on him being, you know, fabulously wealthy and knowing, you know, how to manipulate the system. And this suggests that his whole persona has been built on lies, which I guess really isn't a shock because, you know, he constantly lied while in office. And, you know, those of us in New York, you know, I, you know, I wrote an article about him, you know, in 2013 in the Atlantic years before he was a candidate for office about, you know, why nobody on Wall Street would do business with him. I wrote an article in 2014 for Vanity Fair about, you know, Trump University and the Trump versus Eric Schneiderman showdown, Eric Schneiderman being one of Tish James's predecessors. People in New York are well aware of this uh, Trump behavior. And, but, you know, it's just incredible now to see it all in a legal complaint that has been filed by the New York State Attorney General, recognizing, of course, that it's just one part of the lawsuit. Obviously, Trump is already protesting that this is all, you know, a witch hunt and, you know, politically motivated, et cetera, et cetera. But on the other hand, uh, you know, to see it all in black and white from the hand of the New York State Attorney General is really quite something. And Tish James has referred this to federal prosecutors. I guess the U.S. attorney would have to investigate it further. Yeah, this will sort of give the U.S. attorney, the Justice Department, you know, the criminal justice system a second bite of this apple because there's no question that, in my mind, had Cyrus Vance, you know, who's a friend of mine, remained in office, uh, he would have sought an indictment from the grand jury and brought this to a criminal trial. Why Alvin Bragg dropped it within months of becoming the Manhattan DA is sort of one of the biggest mysteries, you know, out there. But this now referring this to the Southern District of New York gives the Justice Department a second bite of this criminal apple. And in the meantime, there'll be a, obviously this civil uh, lawsuit will proceed. Do we know which Trump advisors in the Trump organization are cooperating or had did cooperate with this case? Alan Weisselberg, the company's CEO, CFO rather, who's also cooperating with Alvin Bragg, I believe. We have Michael Cohen too is involved, right? Yeah, but I think there's a difference between uh, securing a guilty plea and cooperation. Uh, everything I've read is that Weisselberg is not willing to sing in exchange for his freedom, which is incredible when you think about it. Why these people are so loyal to this guy just baffles me to this day. And me too, because he is the most disloyal person <laughs> ever. Like, yeah, right? I mean, he expects lo loyalty with Donald Trump is a one-way street. He, you know, he, he expects it from everybody and doesn't return it to anybody. I mean, he doesn't even pay his own lawyers, doesn't even pay his own contractors. He doesn't even pay his own subcontractors, which is why part of me is cautiously rejoicing about finally seeing somebody in the justice system with the cojones to finally 
bring a serious lawsuit against this guy. You know, Alvin Bragg wouldn't do it. Uh, Merrick Garland still hasn't done it. But, you know, thank the good Lord for Tish James, who's spent three years doing this, did it carefully. I think it's an unbelievably convincing argument. But there are risks, too. And I feel that it's important to point them out in that, you know, I think it's standard operating procedure for Manhattan developers, New York City developers to inflate their projections for a project to overstate the values that they are using on their buildings, their real estate assets to get uh, a loan. And of course, it is the job of a bank and a bank's credit committee to either just turn that project down flat, uh, like most of Wall Street does with Donald Trump projects, or uh, in the case of Deutsche Bank, if they're going to proceed to haircut those projections substantially to the point that they'll say, okay, Donald, you may think this building is worth you know XYZ, but we think it's worth 40% less, so we're going to give you a loan based on that 40% lower number. And, and obviously, Deutsche Bank did that not only once, they did that repeatedly. And what I learned shockingly from this complaint is that, take one example, which is the, you know, the Chicago condo and office tower slash hotel uh, that he built, you know, in in Chicago. It started in 2004. In 2008, Donald Trump claimed that the financial crisis was an act of God and would not repay Deutsche Bank what it owed, said, you know, there's an act of God, therefore I don't have to repay you. That resulted in lawsuits filed in a court in Queens, by the way. I, I went out one day and got a hold of those lawsuits. And eventually, of course, they settled their legal differences. And then, you know, according to this Tish Dames lawsuit in 2012, and then again in 2014, uh, Deutsche Bank lent Donald Trump $152 million on this same project after Donald tried to stiff the bank, you know, in 2008. It's just astounding to me. So some people on Twitter have suggested that Deutsche Bank is a is a victim here. They are the farthest thing from a victim. They are an enabler. They are a willing participant. Uh, they, uh, you know, went along with this because they obviously thought they could make money too from Donald Trump. So they're thick as thieves. And I really hope that this is, you know, the beginning, you know, of the end. This is just a civil complaint. There's a long way to go uh, before anything substantive really comes of it. But maybe this is the roadmap. This will, you know, give Alvin Bragg the cojones he needs to reignite the criminal proceeding in Manhattan. Maybe this will give Merrick Garland the cojones he needs to bring uh, legal action against this guy. I mean, enough is enough. If it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, you know, it's a duck. And Donald Trump needs to see justice finally for what he's uh, been doing here. Tish James said in her remarks today, or yesterday rather, that this is not the art of the deal, it's the art of the steal. And at first I was like, that's kind of corny. And then I'm like, that's pretty good branding. I mean, it just cuts to the chase here with Donald Trump. You're a fraud. <laughs> Bill, thank you for your expertise. Sure. Much appreciated. Thank you, Peter. When we come back, Ben Landy talks to Teddy Schleifer about Gavin Newsom and the governor's potential presidential ambitions. 
Hey, Puck listeners, as a reminder, in celebration of our one-year anniversary, we're offering a rare discount off our subscriptions, 21% off. That's because we launched in 2021, and it's been an incredible year since. So go sign up now. The link is in the show notes. I promise it's even better than The Powers That Be, which, as you know, is the greatest show on the internet. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck, here with Teddy Schleifer. How's it going, man? I'm well. Thanks for having me. I see you on the Zoom rocking the red Puck hat, yes. showing your, your Puck pride as you uh, wander the streets of Los Angeles. Ben, I, I posted this on Instagram and uh, several several Puck heads out there really wanted the hat. I, I did not send them one immediately, but I will get our, our interns hard at work sending Puck hats to my Instagram fans. If you're listening to this and you're interested in the merch, reach out. We'll see what we can do. Sure. Let's go with that. Well, speaking of Los Angeles and California, you've been doing some reporting on a kind of strange only in California story starring Gavin Newsom, among other people. Gavin, hardly needs to be said, is obviously running for president in 2024 or maybe 2028. But he looks thirsty for the job. Um, If Biden hangs on, we'll see. But Newsom has inserted himself into this weird Silicon Valley tiff that's going on between some of the richest people in the industry and in the state over a tax bill that, depending on who you ask, is either going to save the world or is a giant scam. Uh, what is the story here? So this is a, a measure in California, a state famous for 27,000 measures every November, uh, called Prop 30, Proposition 30. Essentially, it is a measure that would raise taxes on people who make over $2 million a year, which, lo and behold, lots of wealthy Californians, lots of wealthy people in tech. And the idea is that that money would generate billions in revenue that would be used to help the climate. It would be used primarily for electric vehicle infrastructure, like the charging stations and uh, rebates. And it is a measure that you would think Gavin Newsom, a Democrat, uh, would support. It is a measure supported by the California Democratic Party, which Gavin Newsom is the nominal leader of. It is a measure supported by Lyft with $25 million. And you would think that Lyft thinks this is good for the climate. Gavin Newsom cares about the climate. Why isn't Gavin Newsom supporting it? And, and you know, he is in this situation where he is in an uh, alliance with a lot of people in California who hate tax increases, otherwise known as Republicans, otherwise known as kind of centrist pro-business Democrats. And it is strange bedfellows indeed that you have Gavin Newsom aligning himself with tech donors and tech leaders, but against a giant tech company in Lyft. Yeah, I mean, presumably Gavin has his own political reasons for wanting to do this. It positions him as being a little bit more moderate on taxes. It is a, um, a fig leaf or a peace offering to other factions in the state that, that maybe he wants to cozy up to. But it also seems like he has some kind of personal animus against this bill and what Lyft is doing. What is the argument that he has against this bill? He is calling this corporate welfare. Gavin is the star of a new eight to $10 million advertising campaign on television and digital, where he basically says this direct to camera. He says Lyft is positioning this as a climate bill, but really it's a Trojan horse. And this is what is best for Lyft itself and is not actually what is best for the state of California. You know, he's framing this as, as corporate capture. That's sort of the, the central premise of the entire no campaign is that we are not anti-climate. We're just not here to, you know, give taxpayer subsidies to Lyft. Now, Lyft counters that, you know, this is not really any of this money going to Lyft directly and that Gavin is sort of being bought and paid for by his own donors. So, like, you have this weird phenomenon where both sides are positioning the other as bought and paid for by some rich entity. Look, 
Gavin Newsom, is he running for president? Is he just very thirsty? You know, he clearly wants to have a national profile in some way. Obviously, he's be foolish not to at least keep his presidential options open uh, if Biden doesn't run in 24, or at least if, you know, when Biden's off stage in 28. Um, but Gavin is, is, is a smart guy, uh, no surprise there. And he has been sort of positioning himself, I think you could argue, for the last couple of years in a way that puts him more in alliance with the state's kind of moderate business community, which of course includes contributors, but I'm not saying it's that cynical. Like it's not purely because he wants to, you know, cozy up to donors. I think it's just good for his brand to be pushing back on liberal excesses when it makes sense. And this is, we, we, we refer to this as, as a little bit of a sister soldier moment. And that maybe makes this seem more interesting than it is or more high profile than it is. But then again, Gavin Newsom is not just like putting out a statement saying he opposes this. Gavin Newsom like is the star of the television campaign that is essentially the entire campaign. I mean, California uh, elections are basically just about TV and Gavin Newsom is TV right now. So he could have just come out against this quietly or not come out for in either direction. Instead, he's coming out for this loudly, which I think says something. Yeah, I assume it's pretty unusual for a governor himself to star in a television ad addressed directly to the population. Obviously, California is a little bit of an unusual state. You mentioned this is a ballot initiative, which means there's actually a popular vote in November. And presumably, Gavin also does not want to cede control of the budgeting process on something like this. I mean, this is a four or five billion dollar bill we're talking about that's being directed by voters. So maybe there's there's an element of him wanting control there. But also to your point about a sister soldier moment, which is it was a really funny line that, that you had. Our colleague Tara Palmieri had a great interview the other day with Jeff Rowe, the GOP operative and consultant. And when she asked him, who is your dream Democratic candidate to run against in 2024? He did not wait a second before replying Gavin Newsom. He said that it didn't matter who the Republican nominee was, whether it's, you know, Rick Scott or Donald Trump, the Republican is going to wipe the floor with Newsom. I thought that was really interesting. And I, and I wonder how much this maneuvering plays into this notion that is occupying Newsom's headspace, that he needs to pivot. He needs to be more of a centrist and less of a coastal blue state caricature. I mean, the brand that Gavin has cultivated, you know, he's basically a career politician. Like, I'm not saying that in a disparaging way. It's just an objective fact. I and mean, this guy's been elected office, I think, since his 20s, late 20s in San Francisco. But right, I mean, Gavin came to prominence as, you know, the liberal San Francisco mayor, you know, who was doing gay marriages before it was legal or before it was cool. He's been sort of climbing the ranks ever since. You know, he's been trying to find, I guess, like Biden, like always trying to find himself in the middle of the Democratic Party. And, you know, over the last year, he's, he's gone out of his way, not to like repudiate the left, but, you know, to find a couple of issues where he can can poke them that are high profile, where he, again, finds himself or searches for the middle of the Democratic Party, which maybe, maybe is what Jeff Rowe is referring to when he wants to cast Gavin as this out of touch coastal elitist. Before I let you go, I'm curious what you think is actually going to happen with this bill, because yeah. you got your hands on a tranche of internal emails from some of the organizers of the No campaign which makes it sound like they are really <laughs> scrounging the, the bottom of the barrel for money. So there's this group of centrist donors in California called Govern for California, um, which are, are closely aligned with the tech industry. And they basically are the funding, the no campaign. As I mentioned, uh, let's just put $25 million into this. The goal, according to the no campaign to beat this, is $50 million. I have a quote from an a uh, Republican fundraiser who's, who's working on this campaign saying, we need to raise $50 million to kill this. 
ultimately, that $50 million is a bet on Gavin Newsom, a bet on how much money can they spend to put Gavin Newsom on TV. Right now, there's been a single poll of this proposition, uh, and the yes side is winning. Uh, then again, Gavin just got up on TV, I think, last week. So it's really a, this is a campaign about Gavin Newsom, full stop. Can Gavin convince you know, centrist Democrats who are concerned about the economy that now is not the time for a tax increase. Yes, I'm with you on climate. I'm a credible messenger on climate issues. I am not being snowed in by, you know, big oil, but just trust me on this one. This is not the climate measure you want. That is essentially the bet the no campaign is is, is trying to wage. And it, it comes down to television again. Like, can they raise $50 million? Can government for California get Silicon Valley donors to pony up here? That comes down to like the unsexy art of, of just kind of chasing money. And we'll see if they can get the 50 million they think they need to beat this. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Totally a fascinating story. Thanks, Teddy, for coming by. You bet. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 